Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan, and I am the chair of the council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Today our special guest is the Honourable James Wood, who has had a long experience in the law, both as a judge and in various other roles. Welcome, James. Thank you. Pleased to be here. James, uh, you were a barrister for some years, Mm -hmm. and then you became a Supreme Court judge. How long ago was that? 1984, I became a judge. As a judge in the Supreme Court? Supreme Court, yeah. I'd been at the bar for 14 years, so I was fairly, fairly young, 43, I think, 42. Well, that's very young for that day, yeah, 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 indeed. And you were appointed to sit in crime and civil litigation? I appointed the Common Law Division, and initially I worked in the commercial part of that division, but I progressively moved more into common law generally and crime, and I particularly enjoyed the crime, and that sort of became the major focus over the years. Yes, uh, by the time I was appointed to the court, you were pretty much involved in crime all the time. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think along your journey, though, as, as judge, you took, was it five years out to look at the police service in yeah, New South did. Wales? Between 1994 and 1997, yeah. That was both in relation to police corruption but also the policing of pedophilia and the concerns that there'd been a number of pedophiles protected by the police, so... It's a two-pronged um, inquiry. That must have been an interesting but challenging inquiry. It was fascinating, really. Yeah. <laughs> I think it produced a change in the culture of the police. So about that time, there's a greater edu- um, emphasis on education and the, at the Goulburn College and quite a, a change in, in approach in policing, I think. And then when you finished the Royal Commission, you went back to the court, and I think you became yeah. the Chief Judge at Common Law. I did, yeah. Uh, and you were in that role for about eight years, I think? Um, no, about that, yeah. 2005 I left. Yeah. yeah. And again, you were immersed in crime as the Chief Judge, I assume. Oh, yeah, exclusively, pretty much. Then. Well, trials or appeals? Both, yeah, yeah. Did you find one more interesting than the other? I preferred trials. Right. Uh, I, I thought they were... Fascinating and a great challenge and very interesting, particularly with my knowledge of policing, to see how well the cases have been investigated. Right. And when you left the court, you, you weren't of retiring age. You were younger than retiring age. No, that's right. And you almost immediately, I think, accepted other full-time roles. Yeah, I started, off, law, yeah, right? I started off as Inspector of the Police Integrity Commission, as it then was, which had just been created as a result of the, my inquiry. I had a few years there, and then I went on to the Law Reform Commission. And full-time? Full-time, yeah. And I think you'd been on the Law Reform Commission previously. Yeah, I had. Um, when I was at, at the bar, um, just before I got appointed, I actually had two experiences, to come to think of it. Much earlier in my career, um, when I was a barrister, I went with some other... Um, Barristers and solicitors on an exercise set up by Justice Mears to investigate, uh, I suppose, a civil law procedure. Um, 
There's a time when the whole of the procedure aspect of the Supreme Court was being reviewed and I was sent to the Francophile countries, because I spoke French, to examine the civil law uh, procedural codes and their, their practice. So I had some time doing that. And then I came back to the bar and then um, I was asked by the attorney to join Ron Sackville in looking at the motor accident compensation scheme, um, which was at that stage a bit of a farce really. Um, people were very easily getting compensated where they had no, no basis because the judges were very sympathetic to people who were injured in car crashes. And we were looking at it, and a lot of people who were severely injured, but maybe through fault of their own, were getting nothing out of it. It's all, and we started looking at a no-fault scheme, and it, and uh, although it was clear that wasn't going to work, we looked at revised aspects to make the system work better to compensate um, people, particularly catastrophic injuries. When was that? How Good question. Um, well, it was just before I became a judge, so it was in the early nineteen eighties. Yeah, yeah, and um, while I was getting towards the end of that, the attorney rang me up and said, would I like to go on the Supreme Court? And I said, yes. Wasn't a hard decision to make? Wasn't a hard decision. I, I really, well, I was interested in the work as the bar, but I had three young kids and I was working, you know, every night all weekend. Yeah. And I decided really this wasn't a great, great life. And also I found that so far my commercial clients were concerned I really didn't particularly like them or their attitudes. <laughs> <laughs> that could be an issue for a barrister, I assume. <laughs> What's a real issue? Yeah, okay. I was quite happy to go and do something which well, was more productive. Yeah. yeah. Well, then, when you um, when when you left the court and went to the Law Reform Commission, you spent a number of years there, I think. Yeah. As the chair of the Law Reform Commission. I did. Yeah. Um, um, but that didn't end your uh, journey through various legal institutions. You went from the Law Reform Commission to the, the Sentencing Council. Yes, yeah. Um, did, were you doing both jobs at the same time? It was a bit of overlap. Um, I replaced um, Alan Abadie, who had been... His, he was the first judge with the, with the Sentencing Council. When he retired, I spoke to him about it because he's a friend, a close friend of mine. And I thought, that sounds interesting. So I did that. I had probably had enough of law reform at that stage too, um, well, we'd got a number of things going, particularly did a lot of work, a lot of work at the end in um, relation to sentencing and, and bail and that sort of thing. So it was a, probably a, a natural move across. Cross over to the Sentencing yeah. Council. Mm. And you were some years, some few years in that role. Yeah, yeah. Um, only passing it over to me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> a few years ago. But that, again, didn't end your involvement in legal institutions no. because... At some stage along your journey, you became the chairman of the parole board. Is that That's right? right. Yeah. What was that? A, a single job you were doing, or were you doing other jobs? No, was that? that was the only job I was doing at that stage. Although, I can't remember now. No, it, it, have to go back to work the dates out. But somewhere along the line between the two jobs, I also got involved in conducting, um, well, two inquiries: one into the child protection system in New South Wales. And the other then into the sports integrity, which I was assigned um, really to the Commonwealth to lead an inquiry into sports integrity, both doping and match fixing and gambling. So on. Gambling, yeah. 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 Um, I'd have to go back and look at dates to see how they overlapped, but 
And also in the meantime, while I was on the court, I've spent um, time each year sitting on the Fijian Court of Appeal. That's right, I which, that. Yeah, yeah. which is work I really loved. Uh, I've always been very interested in work overseas, I guess. Um, and if I'd had my time again, I might well have looked to, to have gone into foreign affairs or something else, but I really did, because I spent a lot of time... Well, the law would have been a lot poorer if you'd done that. <laughs> well, maybe not. I spent a lot of time both at the bar but also on the court in advisory role, um, in especially most of the best ones, so far my point of view, was East Timor, just after the independence, where with the rapporteur from uh, Singapore, we set up, well, we started training people to become judges and lawyers and prosecutors in the justice system. That was the most fascinating and, I suppose, satisfying period of my life, really. Yeah. But I've been to all around, um, all around Asia, uh, Vietnam, Indonesia, China, and also spent some interesting time in Bahrain advising them on how to handle expert evidence. Oh, yes. Did they take your advice? <laughs> I don't know, in the long run. But they were very, very keen to establish a, a commercial court for the region, and they really didn't know how to handle expert evidence or mediation and that sort of thing, where they got big commercial disputes, particularly engineering-type disputes. Mm. Now, I think you also had an international role in sport as well. Yeah, well, I... Tell us about that. After... I'd spent six years at the Parole Authority... And then a chance arose to join the World Anti-Doping Agency based in Canada. Um, and that's something I really couldn't resist because I actually had finished the Integrity of Sport Inquiry at that stage, so I knew a fair bit about the anti-doping challenge and the Russians and so on. And this was at a time when we were dealing with the, the Russian um, manipulation of their doping results. So I, I did that. Um, that meant a, initially meant overseas travel, but then COVID struck. And I ended up, because I was the only one this side of the world, ended up doing all this work at night, starting at 10 o'clock at night and to 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning um, online. But very interesting. We had rep, I, I led the um, compliance committee, so mm. we looked at country compliance with the code. That would be a big task. It was a big task, yeah. Very good committee. Um, and the WADA has got an amazing organisation. They, they really are a most, one of the most effective and efficient bodies I've ever seen. Well, then, what I really want to talk to you about today is parole. Right. Um, the podcast series has taken every listener, if they've followed every episode, through the mm. justice system mm. to the point where people have ended up in jail and yeah. been sentenced. Yeah. And we've had a brief discussion along the way about the possibility of parole and how sentences in many cases are framed mm. with a non-parole period and a, a period prospective parole yeah. period. Yeah. Um, so the starting point for this is I think you're still a member of the mm. parole mm. authority, is that right? Yeah, I, I, would have had another year with WADA, but my wife got very sick and I went then back to overseas travel, probably eight trips a year, and I just couldn't leave for that period of time, so I had to resign from there. And uh, I was able to get back to the parole authority. 
And you're sitting on, on the authority frequently? Or yeah, what's the, what's at least one day. Well, one at the moment, one day a week. Uh, that means a day out there, uh, Parramatta. And also, it's, it requires a full day's preparation on with the material online. So you're doing... So it's two days a week. Commitment for two days a week. You're committed for two days yeah. a week. But this, how, this how week many, I've actually got four days because I've got two two hearing days. Now tell me, how many members of the authority are there? Well, that's a good question. I'd have to count them up. But yeah. um, it divides into different groups. There are judges or former judges, actually, who preside over the meetings. And then there are... Every meeting has five people, whether it's a private meeting where we decide make parole decisions or, and five meetings for the review hearings, which review our decisions. And there's a, each one is presided over by a former judge and then sitting with them is a serving police officer, a serving corrections officer and two people who have been appointed for terms of three years from the community. Right. Presumably with some knowledge or understanding of the criminal justice process. Not necessarily. They've come from all walks of life. The intention was to have a community input from people who really have had no impact with the, no contact with the common, with the criminal law, but have experience of life and understanding of how things work or how the justice system should work. Now, I think, um, and we should just talk in broad terms, mm. when an offender is sentenced and sentenced to a term, a, a, a modest term mm. of imprisonment, mm. there may or may not be a parole period provided? There are fixed terms without any parole period. No, yes. no parole period yeah. at all. That's that only minor. Might be one year's? One year, a year. That wouldn't be, not normally more than a year, fixed no. term. And then if someone's sentenced, say, to three years, yeah. would the judge normally provide a, a, a non-parole period? Almost invariably, I can't think of any circumstances where they wouldn't provide a non-parole period. And I think for a term less than three years, the authority doesn't doesn't have a role to play in relation to that person being released to parole? Not in relation to release. It's actually any sentence of up to three years, including three years, is a non-parole period set. And at the end of that non-parole period, then the offender is released without any consideration by us. However, there's a couple of situations where we can intervene. Sometimes if a person is, uh, I suppose, broken down in custody or has developed mental health issues, then sometimes the government will apply to us to revoke their parole pre-release. We don't see those people. We don't see anybody who's been dealt with in those three-year sentences with no parole periods unless they, late after release, breach their parole. Then might they come back to us. So if you're given a sentence which has a non-parole period in it as the offender, does that mean you cannot be released from custody until you've at least fulfilled the non-parole period? That's the general principle, but there is an exception to that because there's a procedure for reintegration home detention, which if that person has done very well in custody and their offending was non-violent, then community corrections can bring an application to us to let them be released six months before their parole release date to home detention. If they do that, they're placed onto electronic monitoring, they live at home and they can live a normal life otherwise. Can they they, go to the shops and go go to the the theatre and so on? do what they like. Uh, Work and they can... But with electronic monitoring, there's some control of what they're doing. How does that work? 
just in general terms? Well, they have schedules, so they, they need to report where they're going to go, what, what they're doing. But how do you monitor them electronically? A, well, there's an electronic bracelet on their ankle, and that goes to a control room that monitors where oh, they are. Satellite or something, does it? Or? Yeah, yeah. Oh. And it, it picks up the moment that they remove the anklet, uh -huh. but also picks up when their battery is going flat. Uh -huh. And if the battery is going flat, they get a telephone call, charge your battery or you're in trouble. <laughs> And can someone sit at a screen and see where that person they is? They can't see, but they, they know. Well, they can't actually see the person. No, no. But they can track the where they are. They know where the bracelet is. Yeah, they know where the bracelet is. And how many people a year would roughly would get released earlier than their parole period? Uh, not a great number of people. Uh, uh, surprisingly enough, it's many people have had drug offences, but they've got to behave very well in custody to, to get to, there to get, yeah. and very often they're first offenders um, and the other reason they get them out early is that there's no program that they can really do because often they don't have a drug problem of their own yeah. um, and also people, fraud, some of the fraud people to get out the same way too um, and then if they behave well in that six months pre-parole date then they come back to us with a report and if they're okay we then say okay you can transition to parole. And if someone's placed on parole, what does that mean in terms of the way they can live their lives? Well, so long as they behave themselves, it doesn't have a huge um, intervention, except that the parole conditions can include, well, they do include always, that they report to community corrections from time to time, whatever is required of them, just to make sure they're okay. They have to report any change of address. If their parole conditions include conditions that they um, see a doctor to get a mental health plan or if they're required to do some program in the community, AOD service normally, they've got to comply with those conditions. And does someone check to see if they have complied? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, community corrections keep an eye on them because they, they have to report, as I say. Um, and if the person doesn't go to a drug and alcohol service and the alcohol, drug and alcohol service notifies community corrections and if they breach those conditions then they, they come back, their community corrections sends us a report and asks them to revoke their parole which we will do. Well let's come back to that in, mm. in a minute sure. but <clears throat> going back in time, let's assume we have an offender who was sentenced to a total term of nine years mm. And just pulling a number, say six years non-parole, mm. let's assume that's what happened. Yeah. Um, the person's in custody, mm. the parole authority is notified that their parole period is about to... We track it, but... You, oh, you track it yeah. independently yeah. of any other authority, yeah. right. And then 60 days, at least 60 days before they come up for parole, we start getting reports from community corrections as to how they're going. How they're going inside the inside jail. Inside the jail, yeah. yeah. And checking whether they've got accommodation to go to, or whether they can, um, which is always an important consideration, whether they have any family support, um, whether they need to get mental health treatment and so on. So you have officers of the authority actually in the field doing the research? They're not our officers, but they're community corrections staff. I see. Yeah. Which are the prison people? Prison people, yeah. yeah. So they prepare a comprehensive pre-release report. Which comes to... Comes to us. And comes to, what, a group of you... A meeting, yeah. Chaired by the judge. Yeah. 
with the other four. That's right. That, that's a private. It's a private meeting. meeting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, does the offender have any opportunity to make submissions no. to that meeting? Not at that point. Um, well, sometimes they they will send us a letter of support from a family member or a letter saying, "Look, I've got accommodation and employment, etc." They can do that, and we'll look at it. But primarily, the material we rely upon comes from the community corrections officer. So the five of you sit and, yep. and meet and have a report. Yeah. Um, and it's on the basis of that report, you make a decision. Yeah, we make a decision. Can that decision be that person goes to parole? Yeah, it can be they can be either refused or they go to parole. Right. And we give reasons for for whichever decision that it is. Right. Uh, and if they go to parole, you impose the conditions. Yes. Yeah. So you, your decision would be this person can be admitted to parole mm. but must comply with these various yes, conditions. conditions. Yeah. Uh, and then presumably that just goes through the system and they're mm. released. They are, yeah. Uh, and then if some someone comes up in this process mm. but the report is adverse mm. or the five of you don't think the person should be released, what happens then? Then they can we get to give them a review. And at that, so that, that decision is communicated to them, you've yeah, been refused. Yeah. Yeah. Then they have the choice of requesting a review. If they want a review, then it'll come back to us in a court hearing, public court hearing. Right, with advocates? And yeah. The inmate appears on an AVL screen from the prison. Right. And there's a, uh, a lawyer, usually from the prisoner's legal service, to represent them. That's a government-funded. Government-funded. So, and that review occurs in a public... Yep. Forum, I assume, a courtroom. Just like in court courtroom. Um, and depending on the seriousness of the case, sometimes they'll take evidence from psychiatrists or hear submissions from victims and so on. Um, so you're gathering effectively more evidence to see whether or not the decision you originally yeah. made should stand or yeah. can be varied. Yeah. It is most in most cases it doesn't really add anything new, but sometimes it does. Uh, and um, what about a crime where there's a victim? Do they have any role to play in the decision as to whether or not the offender should be given parole? They have some role as a victim, victims register, which anybody who's a victim of crime can register themselves, and then sometimes they can um, make effectively a submission in writing, saying why they don't want the person released and also asking for non-contact conditions and area restrictions so where places where they wouldn't want the offender to go for their own safety. They can appear at court and they can make oral submissions in court. That's fairly rare, but it, it does happen. Now, you may not have this immediately to hand, but um, your sense of it will do. How many people are declined parole on the first occasion when they might be eligible? Well, like I said, it's very hard for me to know. Um, I mean, we're talking about a, a significant proportion don't get parole initially? No, I think the vast majority... The majority, once said the vast majority, the majority would probably get parole at the first hearing because I'm, in that regard I'm talking about the people with, with shorter sentences. The ones who very often, most often, don't get paroled at the first time are, are murderers or people with long sentences, sex offenders and other people, particularly where they haven't done any programs to address their offending behaviour. No. 
and whether at the review stage or the initial stage someone's released to parole, we discuss the fact that conditions can be imposed by the authority yeah. Yeah. on that person. Yeah. If they breach a condition, mm. what happens? Depending how severe the breach is, if it's a serious breach, it comes back to us the recommendation for a revocation of the parole. But the person remains at large until that comes back to you? Well, yes, and when it does, they don't get back into custody until we revoke their parole. Right. Yeah. Sometimes they get a warning. We can give a warning, but um, very often now community corrections will give a first warning. So they issue a letter or some letter, other yeah. means yeah. of communication. Mm -hmm. If it's necessary for the person to come back before the authority, is that another public hearing or how does it operate? Once you make a decision to revoke parole, then a warrant is issued and they're picked up and they're put into custody. Right. So, they'll so they be have in... no chance to resist that no, no. decision at that stage? No. But so they, once we revoke, they stay in custody until they have their review hearing. That's why they come in front of us on the AVL screen from whichever right. correctional centre they're in. And what sort of decisions can the authority make at that stage? We can confirm the revocation. Which means for all, for the rest of the period they can't get parole? Or? Yeah, well, I'll come back to them in a minute because it's a bit complicated. Mm. Um, or we can rescind the revocation on the basis that they can satisfy us that the reason they breached was a mistake or they were sick or COVID applied or they lost their phone. Some rational reason. Some rational reason. Mm. We make sure, however... If if we're going to rescind, they've got somewhere safe to go to and we can give them a little lecture as to the need to comply with their parole, otherwise we'll see them again. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the person who manages to get through the system and is yeah. released. Yeah. But the person who you don't release mm. at that point, can they come back and ask for parole? They can eventually. Yeah. Because, because of a fairly um, tough law that was passed some years ago, once you, your, your revocation has been confirmed by one of the meetings, you can't apply again for 12 months. And that's so harsh that we managed eventually to get a, a, an exception. If they can establish um, circumstances which have explain away the problem and indicate that um, it's they've done a program or they've, they've managed their mental health or whatever, they can come back, or, or if they've received a, a short sentence, a fixed term sentence, a short sentence, we can then let them back out again. Um, so they can apply for further review. But unless they can produce something like that to indicate that it's fair they go back into parole, they will stay there until either uh, the end of their sentence or the the 12 months period. Well, the revocation for 12 months mm -hmm. then automatically... After 12 months, they can then apply again. They can apply again, yeah. but, but they may not be granted parole even at that stage. They may not. Yeah. But it's... I think if someone's been revoked for a, a breach, you would normally, and you confirm it, normally next time around you'd let them out because they've taken a, a year's punishment effectively yeah, for the breach. Yeah. Um, and they've been paroled previously, and it's been a pretty um, solid lesson for them not to breach again. Yeah, sure. 
And what about yeah. someone who is released to parole and then commits another offence? Yeah. What happens? Does, well, the that's parole, a breach. does the parole authority have a role to play at that it's stage exactly. or is it left with the police to prosecute? No. The moment they are charged with an offence, then the police let community corrections know and they'll put in a breach report and then we will revoke them automatically, even though they haven't yet been tried. But they may have been taken into custody by the police yeah, in yeah. any event because yeah, of that, that's right. that crime. Yeah. But then you, you maintain control in what sense after well, that? If, they, if they've got an offence and they've got a court date ahead, then we will stand the matter over until we get a result from that court hearing. Right. So, so let's assume they get another sentence imposed yeah, well, at that court hearing. How do we unscramble the egg in relation to parole? If they've got a new sentence and it's a, a sentence of imprisonment, then we will simply confirm the revocation um, and they will stay in, in prison and serve the new sentence. Depending how long it is, they can apply for manifest injustice by saying well, it was a short sentence and I've now served it, so let me out again. Right. What about if they've committed a really serious crime when they're out on parole? Yeah. And so they get a long sentence that goes beyond the sentence they were well, serving. That's the end of them what, because what we, don't, we don't have any jurisdiction. If they go to... The, once, once a person is revoked, their potential release date is extended out. Yeah. That's called the balance of parole. Mm. It'd be longer than the original expiry date because the time they spend out, they can't use. Mm. They have to have to earn it in this mm. period between the expiry date and the, the, um, the time they've been out. If the new census takes them past the balance of parole, then we have no jurisdiction to consider the case. You, you may get involved when the second sentence comes up for a parole. Yeah, well, yes, but depending what it is, if it's yeah. a, a short, if it's a, a three-year or less sentence... You may not see it again. We wouldn't see it again. But if it's a longer sentence, it because it's a serious of offence, yeah. that'll come back to you mm. for the second offence. Yeah. It's, and it's a, well, it's a new case. New case, yeah. yeah. Um, well, tell me... Uh, what number of people go through the parole authority in a year? We've got any idea how many? Um, I don't have the, the the numbers to my fingertips at the moment. I did know it in the past when I was the chairman of the parole authority. I looked at the numbers very carefully, but now I, I just do my bit. Do your um, your part. We're talking in the hundreds. Oh yeah. Oh thousands. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because we're not only dealing with Chris prison sentences as such, we're also dealing with um, intensive correction orders. Yes. I don't know if you've been touched on those. We have the, touched on those, yeah. but I was going to ask you about other things which the authority mm. does, and that's one of them. Yeah. Is there any other role the authority has in this criminal justice um, system? Not really. Um, uh, sometimes we become aware of proposals to amend the system and hopefully we are consulted as to whether what whether they think well we think it's appropriate or whether it's going to cause problems. Sometimes we have to intercede on our own behalf if, if we haven't been officially notified. Yes. Because it's it is a complex system and it works to my mind pretty well. And if you someone interferes without really understanding the the process, it, it can go seriously yeah. wrong. And quite frankly, that's it did go wrong when they introduced the 12-month rule. It was too harsh. Mm, too harsh. Mm. Mm. 
Well, then let's talk about intensive correction orders from the authorities. What yeah. Well, I don't have too much contact with them, um, I have to say. the I, I'm mainly dealing with the people, decisions whether to to um, revoke or to grant or to refuse parole. The ECOs are very demanding. Like I do know that the authority at any given meeting considers often up to 100 cases. From what point of view are they considering? Whether to, to breach them or revoke whether, them. Because there's been a report of a yep. breach. Yeah. Um, so just in case anyone listening missed the earlier episode, mm. we're talking about a form of um, sentence but served in the community yeah. subject to conditions. Yeah. Supervision and conditions that we have to comply with. Yeah. And the authority, again, is the authority that has the capacity to discipline or revoke That's correct. that person's capacity That's to correct. serve their sentence in the, That's in the community. Correct. And you say that's complex and well, it's, difficult work. It, it is. It's more demanding, I guess, and a bit frustrating because a lot of the breaches that bring them back before us are pretty trivial and and silly breaches. And for the most part, people go back onto their, their code. There's a, a fairly small percentage that actually lose their, their code and end up um, with a Another, another prison sentence. Who brings the breach before the authority? Is that again correction, community corrections? Because they're the supervising body. Right. Yeah. And someone who's again on an eco, as, as it's known, mm. um, who commits a crime mm. while they're on their eco, yeah. do they go effectively through the same process as if they'd been out on parole? Um, well, not. If they've committed another crime, then they're, they're going to be locked up. Right. And in the in the general criminal justice system, so they'll be arrested and locked up, yeah. and then charged or tried and so on. Yeah. What happens to their eco? Though? Does that that gets all that effectively disappears? Revoke. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a revoke. We we can we can cancel the, the eco, and we can also reinstate it mm-hmm. if they, at a hearing they come back and explain that. Well, I'm sorry, but uh, I didn't understand what I was doing or something. I've got a good excuse. They can have it re- re- reinstated. Yeah. Uh, James, um, as we mentioned when we started this, you've had a long experience in the law, mm. but also a very significant involvement uh, in the parole authority and the work of the authority, which continues today. As far as the authority is concerned and the way it's structured and the way our system operates, uh, I assume you've had the opportunity to compare it with systems in other states, maybe other countries. Look, they're, they're very different. Um, very, I, I really have them with other countries, but the other states are set up quite differently. Um, and in some states, all the parole work is just done by, by a judge. In the, in the ordinary course of yeah. the judge's work. Yeah. And in relation to federal offences, it's really done within the department. Mm. Um, ours is, I think, on any count, the most sophisticated System. Because why, why is ours more sophisticated, say, than Victoria? Um, well, I guess it's the way it's been planned, the way it's been developed. Um, I, I, I really wouldn't be able to say. I think in some ways it, people regard our system as, as fairer and as less judgmental in the, the 
we have much more room to move. Right. Um, whether we've had a bigger population of criminals, and but it's it's from the very inception, I think it's been structured in, in a way which works well. As I understand it, the, um, Boxer, the authority that collects statistical information mm. about crime, amongst other things, they're fairly satisfied from their work that parole provides real benefits to the community oh, yeah. in reintroducing people who've offended back mm. into uh, the community to become effective citizens. Is that your understanding? That's my understanding. We can't let anybody out when we're making a parole decision unless we're satisfied that doing so is not going to prejudice the interests of the safety of the community. Um, and the fact that we do let people out means that we're satisfied that they've done pretty well in custody and they're not going to pose a risk. But I have had good experiences with people that lead one man I sentenced for a murder um, who in the course of his time in in custody, married, had children, got a university degree, had full-time employment, um, and you couldn't get a better situation of uh, anybody. Uh, and that that's not uncommon because the important thing I think we have, which I'm not sure the other states have, is that towards the end of the sentence, if you progress to a a good classification and behave yourself. You can get day release, you get weekend release, and you can get works release. And also you can get earlier, apart from that, you can work in community projects. And they all take you out of the prison. And the people with the longer sentences, for the most part, unless they're sexual offenders or unless they're people who are subject to deportation, will get work release. And very often that work release will turn into permanent employment once they're out. And those people at that stage, for the last couple of years of their sentence, may effectively only spend a few nights actually at the prison because they're out on the Monday to Friday to work, they get weekend leave um, and so on. Um, and that's a huge incentive. And there's a lot you, lot you can do in prison if you're reminded to that there are... You get university degrees, you can get a TAFE trade, and then you can work in a prison as an apprentice while you're doing your TAFE studies. Um, you can get educated, which a lot of people do. A lot of people come in, the last number I said, they've come in without any numeracy or literacy or skills and can get an education. And you can do it these programs which will address your offending behaviour, some quite intensive, some less so. And there are opportunities there for someone who um, who is prepared to cooperate. If you don't cooperate, of course, you're not going to get as benefits, benefits and you're not no. going to get out. No. Um, so with all of your years of experience, you are satisfied that our system is working pretty well? Yeah, yeah I think I think I believe that. Um, People are always going to reoffend, and, and but if you compare the people who reoffend seriously against the number of people who are going through the prisons, which I don't know the current figures, but there's something like fifteen thousand people usually in custody um, of all stages of seriousness and classification, and and so on, um, and they don't all come back by any means. 
Well, James, the community owes you a real debt of gratitude for the contribution you've made oh, over you. many years. Um, it's greatly appreciated by all of your colleagues and also many in the community. And thank you for joining us today for this podcast. Okay, well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Honourable James Wood, a special guest in the Sentencing Council's podcast series. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening. Listening.